Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the Sectarianism, Proxies, and Desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Marwa Daoudi. Marwa is Assistant Professor at the Center for Arab Studies at Georgetown University. She's a scholar who's done a lot of absolutely fascinating work, particularly pertaining to uh, the Syrian conflict. Her second book, The Origins of the Syrian Conflict, Climate and Human Security, was published earlier this year with Cambridge University Press, and I'm really looking forward to talking to her about that today. Marwa, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for inviting me, Simon, and for your kind words as well. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm really looking forward to it. I really enjoyed the book and, and your other work. So I thought it'd be fascinating to, to get you on and to talk to you a little bit about, about what you're doing and what you're trying to do in, in your work more broadly. But as always, Marwa, I start with a question about, about you, if that's okay, please. What was it that, that prompted your interest in, in politics and, and academia? So my interest in politics is clearly from uh, being born in the Middle East, uh, being born in Syria, where, you know, politics is part of daily life. Uh, We breathe, we talk, we hear about politics all the time. People are always from all walks of life. Everybody is always interested in what is going on about, you know, the, the, the situation, the regime interaction with other neighbors, etc. So this was my family upbringing as well, like, uh, and, and on my father and my mother's side. My father was Syrian, my mother is Palestinian-Lebanese, and, you know, they lived the Nakba on my mother's side, 1948, the loss of Palestine. On my father's side, all of the issues relating to the uh, Israel-Arab conflict as well. So I, I grew up in that climate. And later on, I thought academia would be a wonderful path because I could write and and say whatever I wanted. There would be no state, no regime checking what I would be saying. Of course, many scholars back in the Middle East and the Arab world have to be censored. But I, I assumed that I would try to be in an environment where I could be very free in my political opinions, in my political writing, and also have the luxury of spending my life thinking, reading, and writing, which is a blessing for for me. And uh, so this is why I thought, starting with a PhD and then moving on later on to uh, trying to write books. It is a luxury. You're right. It's a wonderful career. Granted, it comes with a whole host of challenges and and uh, issues that have to be uh, overcome but it, it really is a, a luxury and I feel very very lucky to be able to do it and I'm very pleased that you're able to do it as well Marwa but thank you can I can I ask that that point where you realized that academia was a space for you to to really think through through ideas and be able to articulate them without fear of of censorship or repression was there was there a particular trigger for that or was it a gradual process of of living in this environment I was inspired. I mean, I, my father had a PhD in international law from from uh, Sorbonne University. So I, I was inspired to see him also enjoying reading, um, writing his diaries, uh, having also a lot of political activities. Uh, but I, I, what I liked with academia was that that would be my main activity. It would not be on the side. It would be my main activity, as well as also interacting transmitting knowledge to younger generations, which is part of our academic also work, uh, which is also very stimulating to me and to, to see how the interaction, the stimulation, but also getting stimulated by by younger minds, by very curious, open, you know, students in that sense and developing this uh, relation 
um, to, to, to students who will go and work possibly in academia, but also in different types of professions, that also triggered my interest over the years. That's really interesting to hear. And I, I love that you're talking about the passion for teaching as well and the passion for, for education and shaping young minds. I think that's, that's marvellous. I must ask, though, Marwa, why, why this particular brand of, of politics or type of politics? When, when you could have gone in any direction, your father, as you mentioned, had a PhD in international law. Why, why, um, why politics and, and regional politics and, and the types of things that you're interested in? So actually, my undergraduate degree, I did international relations, which meant that I I could have gone into a PhD in in law or economics. I chose politics because I thought that is the most, how can I say, diverse, uh, multifaceted, most persuasive, in my view, Mm. um, uh, approach to understanding international international developments and uh, and there you could also you, you also could include legal issues economic issues but you also go into the heart of things you look into causes you analyze you have theoretical frameworks which could help you sometimes or not you can question them as well uh, decipher what is going on beyond what you read in the media so i thought politics was the way forward for me uh, it allowed me to be a bit more free uh, to apply you know when you do law in my view you have to apply texts which are there you can shape them as well but it takes a while to do that so whereas with politics you could decide this variable in my view could be possibly more persuasive in understanding this event etc and when we look back at the history of the middle east we see it's about history it's about politics about economics and and the political angle for me was the most fascinating one that, and about environmental politics, is that your question as well? Well, it, it wasn't. It was more broadly, but I think that that answer really reflects in the work that you've you've done, the the, the material you've produced, which is broad in scope, yet also driven by these these types of questions about the interaction of some of the themes that you've you've just identified, and of course, environmental factors are, or environmental issues are are central to what you've been doing. So. Maybe if you can just say a little bit about your interest in, in environmental factors as well then, please. So, so clearly, I started off from an interdisciplinary perspective in, yeah. in international relations and hydropolitics. But it's really the intersections of politics, economics, law, over water sharing and the sources of state power in international river basins. And actually... When I started my PhD work, I was looking for a good, you know, something which would stimulate me for many years. And you have to be passionate yes, that's about true. your doctrinal work, otherwise it's too painful, right? It's already <laughs> exactly. painful in itself, but it becomes too painful if you're bored. So I needed really something to stimulate me. And of course, I wanted to do something about the Arab world, about the Middle East. And as I was, you know, looking and, and, and seeking an, an interesting topic, I... I watched a documentary uh, where, in fact, there was the discussion about water being a source of conflict. And I was thinking, this is really fascinating, because when you look at water resources and you look at conflicts over water between, for example, the Israelis and the Arabs, and between, for example, Syria, Turkey and Iraq, which was actually the topic of my my first book of my dissertation, um, 
it's multifaceted. It's about water, but it's also about land. It's about agriculture. It's about power, which I'm interested in. And yeah. how do you project power through the capture of natural resources? And are natural resources actually sources of conflict or cooperation? So these were topics that brought me into environmental politics and more broadly, uh, non-traditional security issues. Because security is not only about nuclear deterrence or about great power rivalry. It's about also the environment. And, and how could we enhance actually relations so that the management of the environment and the, the allocation of resources is beneficial to all versus being a source of conflict and, and zero-sum games. So there's a, there's a big Copenhagen School influence on your work in that regard, Dan, is there? Yes, because there are also the narratives around that, right? Sure. When we talk about water scarcity, how scarce are we actually? You know, I've been to workshops where... I was working on Turkey and Syria and Iraq, and the Turks, who are known to be very water-rich, would go to workshops and say, we are water-scarce, and there's climate change. And, and actually, it's a question of perception as well. Possibly, mm-hmm. they perceive themselves as potentially water-scarce in the future. But there's also a narrative there, which is being shaped by sometimes the most powerful actors in international river basins, and and they shape the narrative so that they can shape the solutions to the problem as well. So securitization in Copenhagen School was a very interesting approach for me to look into these Foucauldian, you know, aspects of, of um, you know, rivalries and power struggles over natural resources. It's as much about perceptions, the shaping of the perceptions as the narrative, as the actual resources themselves. Exactly. And that's that's absolutely integral, I think, to, to how we should approach the region and to to the work that you're doing, of course. Uh, Marwa, I wanted to talk a little bit about your your first book, which I believe is in French. So yes. there's a good chance that, that a number of people haven't read it as yet. Um, but could you tell us a little bit about it, please? I realize it's your, your PhD thesis as well. And I think it would be really useful and interesting for people to have a sense of, of what it was that you started out doing. Before we get on to, to your work more recently on Syria, please. Yes, and thank you for asking me about my first book. So um, th- this book was published in 2005 with CNRS Edition in Paris. Actually, what, what I was interested in, in showing is actually when I started working on rivalries over water resources and this idea of water scarcity, clearly. And, you know, there was in the 1990s this emerging schools, the the so-called Toronto schools, etc., which looked into water scarcity as a source of conflict. And I was thinking, oh, how is that informing our understanding of what is happening um, over the Euphrates and Tigris rivers? And so I went and I did field work in Syria, extensive field work, uh, where I was able to get access to the minutes of the negotiation process between Syria, Turkey, and Iraq, a negotiation process over the Euphrates waters, which had taken place in the 1980s. And as I looked into the minutes, I saw actually a lot of cooperation because there were engineers meeting, discussing water sharing. But then if you put it in the broader political context, you just thought, but actually the the three countries were not really cooperating over water sharing. So what happened there? And this is where I looked into the power asymmetries and the security differences between those uh, riparian states, uh, applying also a negotiation theory approach where, in fact, I looked into the role of asymmetry, power asymmetry, in informing actually outcomes in the basin. And for example, one aspect which I thought and I conceptualized as as reversing power asymmetry is the way Syria 
reverse its asymmetrical downstream position on the Euphrates River vis-à-vis Turkey, the upstream country, by proceeding to what what I, um, in fact, is referred to in the literature as issue linkage. And Syria linked the issue of water sharing with its support to the Kurdish insurgency in Turkey, the PKK. And suddenly, it was no longer about sharing the Euphrates uh, waters, right? It was a broader security issue. And that's why, actually, the title of my book was The Water Divide Between Syria, Turkey, and Iraq, Negotiation, Security, and Power Asymmetry. And, and how the different strategies applied by the downstream countries also appealing to international organizations such as the World Bank to stop funding the uh, the gap project, the upstream gap project in Turkey, which would have cut significantly the waters of the Euphrates and Tigris rivers to the downstream riparians, was, was an effective way for the Syria and Iraq to counter their asymmetrical power. So that was what the book was about, but also to show how on the daily engineers, you know, level, they were actually able to interact and discuss. And my interviews showed that they developed actually relations and good work relations, a counterpart across the river. But then when this process became securitized and a broader security issue, then we had a conflict. That's fascinating. So at an agential level, if you will, there was cooperation between the different, um, the different workers but then structurally, when when national politics, national security got involved, there became these, these serious impediments. Absolutely. And then just basically, it, when, when the Ministry of Foreign Affairs took over from the Minister of Irrigation or from the engineers, you know, negotiation process, then the issue became politicized and securitized. Of course, yeah. What were those structural factors then, would you say? If you were to, to just briefly list a few of the structural factors that meant that that this cooperation couldn't translate at the, the next level, what, what were so, they? So clearly there was the more regional and global alliances, like Turkey until the early 2000s. You know, Turkey is still part of NATO, but at the time Turkey had very good relations with the U.S., uh, had developed a very... Uh, important for Turkey military alliance with Israel as well uh, in 1996. So, and clearly Syria and Iraq were a different, in a different camp. So there was the axis of resistance for Syria uh, vis-a-vis Israel and, and part of the Arab-Israeli conflict as well. So these more global structural issues impacted the, the, the country's interactions. And that changed actually when you had a change of identity in Turkey, the identity of the elites in the early 2000s when the AKP came over, came, took power, was elected. And then suddenly there was more talk about integrating Turkey in its Islamic environment, developing good neighborly relations. The structural difference, the structural change actually brought more cooperation over water issues, although there was never really it didn't really change the status quo in the sense that there was never an allocative agreement between the different countries, but the relations improved. So the structural variables are important in that sense. Fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. I know you pick up on some of these things in in an article in International Negotiations, so I'd, I'd urge people to get hold of that if they if they don't feel comfortable enough reading about the, the nuances of this in French. But, yes, thank you, Simon, for mentioning this article, yes. No, my, my pleasure. I think it's so very important and absolutely fascinating. The, the piece is titled Asymmetric Power, Negotiating Water in the Euphrates and the Tigris. So that was from 2009. So do, do dig that out. I think it's really important. Marwa, you, you also have touched on, um, on the Golan area and negotiations in the Golan. 
where did this come from? This is a, a bit of a departure from the environmental side of things, perhaps. So where did where did that come from and what were you trying to do in, in that piece in international affairs? So actually, it doesn't depart so much from the environmental aspect because water was a major file, a major issue in the Syria-Israel negotiations as well. Sure. Yes. And by uh, right, so so you're right to think that it's about the Golan Heights, but it's also about the water that the Golan Heights uh, actually um, uh, possess. And when it came to negotiating the peace agreement between Syria and Israel. Uh, the main concern here is about access to the Tiberias Lake and also uh, tapping the groundwater that is part of the Golan Heights. And actually, when, when Israel uh, occupied the Golan Heights in 1967, it managed to reverse its downstream position to acquiring the sources of the Jordan River, which was a major change, strategic advantage that Israel took after 1967. So again, it's about the land, but when we think about water resources, we also think about the land, the capture of the land in that sense. So what I did in that article is that I, I interviewed the Syrian policymakers who were involved in the Syria-Israel peace process and to get their perspective, because we often have, we have so many articles about the Israeli perspective uh, on the peace process with yeah. Syria. Right. And, and so nobody had written about the Syrian perspective. And when I managed to interview these uh, policymakers or the negotiators uh, to the peace process, I, I saw I, I wanted to convey uh, the Syrian perspective to show that actually a lot of progress had been made in the peace process, contrary to what we think. And actually what what uh, prevented um, the peace process from being successful was that there was suddenly uh, at the Assad-Clinton meeting in 2000, a shift in the Israeli uh, uh, position, which was Syria was asking to have, to regain, actually, access to Lake Tiberias, which it had before the 1967 war. And the Israelis put on the table through President Clinton, who, from reading his memoirs, says that he was not aware of the change in the position. And this is where the role of the secretary, the state secretary, Dennis Ross, was very crucial here, uh, to say that the line had receded. And then in that sense, the plan that was put on the table would not have given Syria uh, access to Lake Tiberias. And this is when Assad stood up and left, and that was the collapse of, of the meeting. And clearly, water here was a very crucial element in either uh, fostering success or the collapse of the peace process. Sure. Well, thank you for sharing that. Again, uh, really interesting and important stuff. And I guess um, there's there's an environmental dimension in, in a range of things that, that superficially we wouldn't necessarily expect there to be. Absolutely. Or, and that's why I think environmental politics are so interesting, <laughs> yeah. especially environmental security, actually. It's more the angle of environmental security, which is linked to a myriad of, of security issues. Exactly. And that, I think, is a wonderfully smooth segue into your more recent work, Marwa. And in particular, your, your book with Cambridge, The Origins of the Syrian Conflict, Climate and Human Security. So I have a lot of questions about this, but perhaps we could maybe just start just with you um, sharing a few reflections about the book, what it is that you are trying to, to do in it for people who've not had the, the pleasure of reading it thus far. So actually... Um I, I, I had started another book, Simon. Uh, I had started writing a book about 
the failure of U.S. mediation in the Middle East in the peace process because okay. I thought there was a lot of lessons to be learned about so. that failure. And uh, looking into other cases such as Northern Ireland, Bosnia-Herzegovina, and thinking about why did the U.S. fail in, in, in brokering peace in the Middle East. And then the Syrian, you know, the Syrian uprisings happened. And that was a major, you know, sort of shock for for Syrians, but also for the region. And then it turned into a conflict, a tragical conflict. And then I changed my topic. I thought, I started hearing you American scientists talking about the Syrian conflict being climate-induced. And uh, according to this logic, actually, they the climate change caused the drought of 2006-2010. Then the drought caused agriculture failure. And then agriculture failure caused poverty and discontent, culminating in the uprising. And when I, when I started reading these theses, I, I, I was thinking, I've worked on environmental security in Syria for many years. I know water development. I know the water policies. I should weigh on that because I, I strongly disagreed with that perspective. Sure. I, thought, I think the Syrian uprisings were more about uh, social justice, about uh, um, the agency of the local people. And, and of course, the environment has a role to play. But more from a human security or human insecurity perspective. And so I, I started digging into this and I decided to look into the impact of climate change, but more from a human security perspective. And this is where I, I thought that there, there needs to be an approach which is in fact multifaceted. And I developed a framework, conceptual framework, which I call the Human Environmental Climate Security, the HEX framework, to, to analyze the interactions between human security, climate security, and also political and economic structures. Because yeah. in my view, we needed to look into the unequal power structures that caused or encouraged human suffering, which were at, at, the, um, at the root of the Syrian uprising and later on the Syrian conflict. I love how you start the book. I think it, it really sets out your case very, very powerfully. Um, and the quote from Yassin al-Hajj Saleh is, is so apt and supports, I guess, everything that you're trying to do in the book. And if I, I can just quickly read it. Of course. I just discover as we speak this thesis about our revolution being climate-induced. And I fail to understand the purpose and context for such a claim. People who voice such explanations are obviously ignorant of our situation and history. And it's such powerful words from, from Yassin there. And Absolutely. I think it, Absolutely. it really does support the entire thesis that whilst whilst environmental factors are, are certainly important in a range of ways, that shouldn't be at the expense of of a whole host of other political, social, um, justice related issues. Absolutely. So, so when I met Yassin back in 2016, um, I, 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 I thought I would test that theory on him. You know, Yassin Hashaleh is a major writer, Syrian writer, uh, a political dissident who, who's very known and has been always, he's been in prison for many years, more than 15 years. So I, I asked him, I said, what do you think about that theory? He had not heard about it. And uh, right. he asked me afterwards to send him sources of, of scientists and climate scientists who were writing about these things. And so I sent it to him and he was appalled, actually. So um, again, also I interviewed a refugee, in fact, from Deir Zor in Lebanon, 
and now and he had been also going through that drought and the, the major human suffering like which was climate induced as well but also because of the conflict the conflict itself and he was also saying but what, what does it have to do with the conflict what does it have to do with our our issues although he had suffered from the drought so starting from that i thought there's much more to be said also giving agency to the syrian population to the syrian people because when you when you blame a conflict uh, over climate change you take out the agency of people and you take out also the responsibility of the central government in creating human insecurity and suffering because it's also the way the drought has been managed which is an issue there were policies which were not effective uh, there was a total disregard for the vulnerability and the suffering of the populations of the northeast of Syria where the drought struck in 2006 until 2010 and there's the, also the issue of ideological choices the policies that were uh, uh, adopted at the time in 2005 and 2006 were uh, gearing, in fact, towards uh, the privatization of the economy, towards neoliberal reforms, which took out all of the safety nets that these populations had in the past, which allowed for more human insecurity and, and more suffering, and, of course, migration of these populations. Because often the climate conflict nexus, which was developed outside of the Middle East and the Arab world, mainly in the you know global north, is about migration being the central variable uh, between climate change and conflict. Say because there are there is uh, migration because of climate change, then they, these migrants are sources of instability and conflict. So that's a double penalty for these migrants yeah. who not only have been dispossessed but also are seen as a source of conflict. But there is a, a dimension, or the, there is a, a slight salience to the argument that that there was an environmental dimension to things in the sense that, from my understanding at least, that environmental challenges were met with with biopolitical approaches that were discriminatory, that were badly managed, that were were corrupt, that were designed to to make the, the wealthier individuals in the Assad regime wealthier and to discriminate against those those poorer individuals so there was there's an intersectionality i guess isn't there between environmental issues and social justice uh, absolutely simon and that's why the framework that i i develop in my book is called human environmental climate security the climate security dimension is crucial and i don't deny the impacts of climate change the environmental aspects are very, very important to understand what happened. But these are not triggers of conflict. It's more the uh, actually the context, the political, the social, the economic context. And when when the, um, the Syrian regime moved on, the government moved on to the social market economy, it moved on to um, stopping canceling the subsidies to these to the populations in the northeast under the pretext of fighting corruption and clearly um, uh, subsidies were were sort of f fostering corruption because they were not properly distributed they were not properly accessed by the whole population but instead of doing it gradually they did it very systematically at a time when the drought was striking and clearly the environmental mismanagement 
the, the political mismanagement, the economic mismanagement in a region which has traditionally been the poorest region in Syria, where you have the highest levels of unemployment, the highest level levels of, of poverty as well, and corruption, was really bad timing uh, in that sense. And clearly, I agree with you, the environmental dimension is crucial, but the problem is when you have those climate uh, conflict nexus approaches which are developed outside of the region, um, they just focus on the environment. They don't link it to the political, the social context. And here, for example, one aspect that I really outline in my book is the role of ideology. And ideology pre-2005, the Ba'athist ideology which pushed for intensive irrigation, uh, land confiscation, um, uh, also these subsidies which were supposed to support the, the, the local populations, which are, by the way, the constituents to the Ba'athist party as well. And from one day to another, the social market economy, which you know, pivoted to uh, liberal you know, reforms, which just focus mainly on the urban centers and completely neglecting the rural populations. So clearly, it's a mix of all of these factors. And that's why I think, as you rightly mentioned, uh, uh, one has to look into environmental issues, but linking them to the social, economic yeah. and political factors as well. Well, thank you for elaborating on that. And I, I really, really appreciate the importance of agency that you're placing in this, in this analysis, particularly well, when when environmental approaches or particular approaches that you've identified really do erode any agency that that Syrians had at this point. Marwa, could you just elaborate a little bit on your on your framework then, please? Just for, for people who've not read it, I think it would be useful just to get a sense for for more detail on the, the framework itself for, for anyone wanting to use a similar type of approach. Okay, so actually, so what I'm what what I did in my book is I started by looking into the conflict, the climate conflict nexus, from as you mentioned the securitization perspective. I looked at the narrative behind it and what was it trying to do, and to be able to debunk it later on. And again, migration is a crucial variable here. Uh, how how migration has been portrayed in the in the previous years as a source of conflict, and we see that with the whole debate about refugees coming to Europe, as you know, uh, as potential source of instability. That was also part of the discussion about environmental migrants or environmental refugees. So I looked through to all of this from a critical security perspective, which is in fact to go back to uh, giving agency to the population and their perspective and how do migrants perceive all of these discussions. Um, I also look into um, a historical assessment of water policy in Syria and the Middle East uh, to, to offer insights into the cultural and institutional norms surrounding water over the last millennia. And that I find very interesting because it also informs us about how these, in fact, perspectives and cultural norms and institutional norms inform uh, the historical development of, of, um, of Syria, actually, and, and the region as well. So I go back to looking into water legislation from the Sharia law to the Ottoman Magella Code and the French Water Code to see, in fact, what were... What were the practices uh, for promoting water security in Syria in the last 100 years, actually? And then I show how ideology and specific policies shape the human security of vulnerable people in Syria, 
contributing actually to poverty, unemployment, marginalization, and the failure of sustainable development. So by going into this historical analysis, I identify key policy decisions taken at critical times of Syria's history, uh, going back to the so-called rural contract, to the collectivization of agriculture, to strategic increases in food production. And this is why I frame it into, in terms of ideology being a driver of human insecurity. Um, uh, I show how the peasant became a symbol of the new Ba'athist ideology and a path to prosperity and legitimacy. So actually, it's a mixed, it's a mixed bag because agrarian reforms enhanced living conditions in the countryside, but they also came at the expense of sustainable water use with large-scale irrigation <clears throat> plans um, and also the overexploitation of groundwater. Then what is interesting when you see shifts in ideology is to see how to show how decollectivization started early on under Hafez al-Assad and intensified when his son Bashar al-Assad gained power in 2000. And the liberalization policies, which started in the 1970s, which often people um, disregard, actually, they started under Hafez al-Assad. They aim to increase the role of the private sector, also in the provision of welfare services. And that had a direct impact on the agricultural communities in the Northeast. And again, 2005 is a major, you know, uh, um, turning point with the major ideological shift that occurred with the introduction of the social market economy intended to actually model Syria's new economic transition on Germany's economic model after World War II. And so here, under Bashar al-Assad, the regime tried to cater to urban businessmen and neoliberal international organizations, such as the World Bank and the IMF, uh, by cutting key food and fuel subsidies and removing safety nets for the farmers. And that was, in fact, introduced, uh, and it coincided with a historically severe drought in 2006. So what I do in my last chapter, chapter five, I, I introduced a longitudinal analysis of key indicators. I wanted to compare the drought of 2006 with the previous drastic drought of 1998-2001 to be able to see what was different in 2006. And clearly, it points to a vulnerability nexus in three governorates in Syria, the Hasake, Deir Zor, and Raqqa, which are the northeast part of the northeast region, where you always had also unusually high levels of poverty, unemployment, particularly in agriculture, and high dependence on the agricultural sector, which already existed before the droughts. And in fact, these dynamics increased economic and social vulnerability for the population, creating what I, I outline as an urban-rural divide. And what happened in 2006 is that corruption and migration were especially large sources of human insecurity. And by 2010, my conclusion is that it was clear that the neoliberal reforms had not been successful. So this is how I structured, in fact, my HEX framework, looking at the political factors, ideology, how it impacted history, the historical development and water policies, moving on to the most recent area where I compare the two droughts to be able to generalize my research findings. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that, Mara. I think it's it's a really interesting approach and and one that, that really helps helps us, and by us, I mean the reader, to, to get a handle on, on this type of approach and the ways in which all of these these factors interact, intersect, intersectionality Absolutely. of all of these, these forces, I guess. Mara. Simon, if I may add just one point. Please. Is the, 
I based my research, uh, I, I was able to also look into primary sources of, of agricultural development, the policies that were implemented. I also drew a lot on something that was often disregarded, is the debate among domestic experts on these issues. And it's very interesting to see that in between 2006 and 2010, before the conflict, a lot of Syrian experts debated the impacts of the drought, the impacts of the neoliberal reforms. They were critical of the impacts. They were warning about poverty. They were warning about the dispossession, migration, and they advised, they, they gave policy advice. So I'm drawing also a lot on the on this domestic expertise to show that also the agency of, you know, domestic expertise in that sense and what was happening in Syria at the time where there were calls for the government to reinstall the subsidies because there was migration taking place and dispossession and also drawing attention to the impacts of the drought. So this was a major also source of information which often is, is not taken into account yeah. in the climate you know, nexus sure. discussion happening outside of Syria. Well, I think it, it creates a really, really intense, detailed and fascinating, albeit deeply depressing account of of Syria over the past few decades and and the role of environmental factors within that. It's a really important read, and I, I do urge anyone who's not got hold of a copy to do so uh, as and when you can. It's, it's really worth your while, a really important book. And I think as well as offering a detailed account of, of environmental factors and, and politics and the intersectionality of these things, it also pushes discussions in international relations and, and quote-unquote security studies that little bit further away from from traditional accounts, which I think is, is a real a real bonus. But Marwa, thank you so much for your time today. We've taken up a lot of it, and it's just been absolutely fascinating hearing you talk about about your career, your, your early work, and, and this recent book. It's all fascinating. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you so much, Simon, for, for your great questions, for your interests, for a great podcast as well. And uh, as I said to you before our discussion, I very much look forward to reading your book, which was just published this year. <laughs> You're very kind. Where, where you tackle also issues of agency, identity, ideology. So I think we also intersect in our research interests. And I wanted to say that it was really a pleasure to talk to you. I think we do. And the pleasure was all mine, Marwa. Thank you so much. Thank you. Until next time, thanks for listening.